Hello, I'm Kevin Givanoni, and I'm doing this MSLP podcast from Gdansk in Poland. I'm yet to co-chair and help uh, with the uh, Ekrem Summer School. This is something we hold every uh, summer, where we bring around uh, around about 30 trainees together to teach them how to do research and, and manage MS. It's a very nice initiative, and it's usually very friendly and uh, collaborative. Anyway, I've just decided to put out a uh, MS Selfie uh, podcast on the annual follow-up consultation simply because I've had quite a few uh, queries around um, the annual follow-up consultation. Um, I've, I must point out that a large number of you are very, un, uh, very unhappy with the uh, annual follow-up consultation. Uh, you feel rushed. You don't get to give to given sufficient time. And the question is, what can we do, what can we do about it? Now, the issue of the annual follow-up consultation is uh, long-standing. The Association of British Neurologists (ABN) uh, allocate 15 minutes for a follow-up consultation. Often, you don't even get 15 minutes, uh, and you, you don't get to discuss all your problems. Now, often this is not uh, the fault of the uh, neurologist or MS clinical nurse specialist. It's simply that they are overworked. And there's simply not enough manpower to de- to deliver what's required, and so this is kind of a symptom uh, of the NHS in crisis in terms of having insufficient resources to cope with the workload. Um, this is made worse because the NHS has this uh, policy about managing chronic or long-term conditions, where they feel you should be managed by specialist teams. So this is a little bit of a catch-22. Yeah, you are expecting to be looked after by your MS team, and it's not sufficient time to do it. Um, so I'd just like to go through some of the uh, um, reasons why I think 15 minutes is inappropriate. And I'm fortunate uh, in that I often have uh, people to help me in my clinic. These are what I would call supernumerary. These tend to be uh, research fellows or visiting neurologists wanting to come learn about MS, and they can help uh, do our clinics, which means that my clinic list is all overbooked, and we've got more people doing it, so... And the downside is some people get disappointed because they don't see me personally in my clinics. Anyway, one thing I want to know is that um, I personally don't have a pro forma. I don't have a tick box list. I uh, just adapt my consultation uh, to the individual patient. And I think the needs of somebody with MS changes over time. You know, and uh, I in the past, uh, designed the so-called uh, MS journey as a train journey using the London Underground map to illustrate uh, the point where people typically start off obviously being at risk uh, and then moving through an asymptomatic or prodromal phase uh, to the diagnostic phase of the disease. And then once they're diagnosed with MS, they may go through stages of no uh, or minimal disability, moderate disability, severe disability, and finally the terminal stage of having MS. <laughs> I must point out that not everybody goes through all stages, and I think in the current era where we're managing this disease more aggressively, we are preventing people becoming disabled. And I've added a, a, a new line about long-term remission and cure, um, which is just saying that we, if we treat this condition very aggressively up front, we may actually prevent people developing even moderate or even severe impairment, depending on when we treat them. So built into this map is also hope, and each line on the map is a different aspect of MS management and every little stop on the map has information behind it.
And this is one of the um, motivations for doing MSLP is that over time, every one of these lines will be fully explored and there'll be information available on the microsite, which you are kindly supporting. Uh, so you can get this information uh, of the curated website. Um, so that's why I tailor it. It depends on the part of the journey the individual person with MS is on. And obviously their problems may vary. And we go into more detail if there are problems. And if there are no problems, we skip over them. Um, now, I know that a lot of healthcare professionals are very keen on creating what they call specialist care pathways for each symptomatic problem people with MS have. And I think that fragments care. You know, if you want to practice holistically, you should be able to deal with most problems in one clinic. Um, and I have no problem. I have no difficulty with uh, a care pathways when people are referred to a different uh, team, you know, with a specific problem. And that could be, for example, referring somebody into the continent service for management of their bladder or bowel dysfunction, which is usually in the local community, and they would have pathways for diagnosing and managing that particular problem. Similarly, we often refer patients to a spasticity clinic for consideration of backlog and pump. That spasticity clinic is not designed purely for MS. It looks after people with other neurological conditions. And I think a care, you know, a care pathway there is absolutely appropriate. I think you know, within one MS service, having multiple separate care pathways for all the problems will not only increase health utilization, it will fragment care, and it may even drive up costs. So you know, a much better use of our service would be to create bigger clinics or longer and longer appointments so we can deal with all the problems. Anyway, the following is is a typical series of questions or issues I go through in a, in a follow-up clinic uh, that happens in our center annually. And depending on individuals, we may see them every six months, particularly problematic patients who have lots of problems. So the one question is if you're on... Uh, disease-modifying therapies or considering disease-modifying therapies, is your MS active? You know, had you had a relapse in the last 12 months, and is your annual MRI scan active as you have new lesions? I mean, knowing that may make you eligible for starting treatment, switching, or even escalating a, a disease-modifying therapy. So it's really important to be able to say, is your MS active or inactive? Are all your pharmacovigilance and de-risking activities being done? And that makes makes us check your blood tests, makes us make sure you had your cervical smears or your HPV screening, you've been for your um, other cancer screening if you're part of the National Cancer Program. Uh, example for this would be, you know, if you were on nalizumab, we'd make sure we had six monthly JC virus antibody index done. And potentially if you are JC positive and continuing on the therapy, we've got to make sure you're having your four monthly uh, um, PML monitoring MRI scans. So these are the kind of things that need to be done and it differs depending on which DMT you're on. Then there's also the question, are you stable or getting worse? In other words, are we picking up <laughs> smoldering MS? And in our centre now, to save us time, we ask our, in our own patients uh, to engage with their own monitoring. We expect them to complete an online web EDSS and do their own time 25-foot walk and 9 peg test. And we've now started in online uh, STMTs. That's a symbol-digit modality test of cognition. Yeah, not all patients uh, do this. I, I think the adherence rate is about 60%, and we hope that with time we'll drive that up to 100%, because I think it's important for us to monitor what's happening to your, uh, or the impact of the disease on you. Some of my patients come back with much more, much more information. They do walking or running times, and they may even come back with activity monitoring from, them, from their smartwatches. 
Uh, I think this will ex- be expanded in the future to include neurological stress tests and even home sleep monitoring, you know, we using wearable technologies. You know, there are these very clever smartwatches now, there's even these very clever rings that monitor sleep. Uh, I think that the sleep is, is an elephant in the room in the sense that it's a big problem in the MS space. The majority of people with MS have a sleep disorder, which contributes to poor brain health and exacerbates fatigue. So if we can just get people with MS to sleep better, uh, not, it'll not only will it improve their outcomes, but it will also improve other symptoms. So that's something you should think about. Are you sleeping properly? I then ask for a current list of medications. Uh, sometimes I start the consultation asking for current list of medications. Um, and I'll try to review that list. So it's very easy. It's very important for you to take a list of, with you to the clinic. Um, sometimes people have poor memories and they can't remember it. Uh, and so we spend a lot of wasted time trying to find out what their medications are. And sometimes the medication list acts as a prompt for the rest of the consultation because you can go through all the different types of medications uh, uh, there are. And I also include on the list uh, supplements. You know, are people taking supplements? And the reason I ask for that is because sometimes they interact with other medications and can cause, for example, liver function test abnormalities. Um, one thing I do notice, though, it's incredible how often discussions around supplements uh, and alternative therapies often hijacks the consultation and we spend the time getting distracted to discussing the benefits or, or, or the evidence base behind supplements when there's not a very good one. Then I move on to symptomatic problems. Um, and the list of symptoms I ask about, again, yeah, will depend where you are on the MS journey. There's no point in asking an individual about spasticity, trips, and falls uh, if in a patient who's not disabled and, for example, runs marathons. So you've got to tailor the symptomatic questionnaire you ask. I tend to always start with bladder and bowel function and then proceed to sexual dysfunction. Um, I think bowel and bladder is very common, but it's a in, and it kind of makes it easier to ask about sexual dysfunction. Um, I was my MS nurse pointed out in the past that I tended to miss asking women about their sexual function, and um, this is clearly a cognitive bias. And I now make an effort to ask all my patients. I say all. You know, if somebody comes to clinic with a friend or family, it may not be appropriate to discuss sexual function. Uh, in the open and this is why uh, these asynchronous tools for monitoring and these questionnaires we use um, can highlight that without having to discuss it openly so this is one of the advantages of preparing or using tools for the annual follow-up appointment is that you can highlight things like sexual dysfunction that make it that patients often feel uncomfortable doing it I then move to um, uh, walking trips and falls. Uh, even if a patient is not falling, they may be at risk of falls and, and they may need to be referred to a physiotherapist for a fall prevention program. And at the same time, I will ask the general practitioners to assess their bone health. This will be involved in a DEXA scan or a bone density scan. Uh, and they must take the vitamin D supplements, as I've said to you before, for adults, 4,000 units of vitamin D3 per day is my recommendation. Um, uh, and if you are osteoporotic, uh, or have thin bones, you may have to have calcium. And obviously there are treatments for osteopenia, depending on what uh, picks up. But then move on to uh, things like fatigue, sleep, nocturnal, leg spasms, restless legs, pain, uh, and a whole other a lot of symptoms. Um, and then move into the issue of mood and anxiety, which are really common. And unless you ask about them, you won't find out. And often I have to uh, initiate referral to a cognitive behavioral therapy or mindfulness and get the general practitioner to monitor it and, and maybe refer to psychiatrists if it's severe depression 
or there's a risk of suicide or to initiate uh, you know, antidepressive therapies. It's very, very common. And in every clinic, I must be dealing with uh, anxiety and depression in two, three, four patients a clinic. That's how common it is. Um, I tried to address all the issues I've mentioned in the past uh, that impact brain health. You know, I try and ask about exercise, diet, comorbidities, other lifestyle factors such as alcohol, smoking, uh, or other substance misuse. Uh, There's also the issue about HRT and brain health. Uh, And in in an ideal world, I would love to be able to screen everybody who comes to my clinic for hypertension and the state of the metabolic health, but I just don't have time for this. And also the management in the NHS of these problems is done by the general practitioner, so they're a better place to do the screening. I must admit it's quite depressing uh, that many of my patients who have comorbid hypertension or diabetes are not actually engaged with managing their comorbidities as, as much as they are with their MS. You know, what I mean by engaged is they're not me- measuring their blood pressure weekly, they're not doing their daily or twice daily blood monitoring for their glucose. You know, if you want to manage your hypertension and diabetes proactively, you have to engage with monitoring it. And you've got to feed this back in some form to your GP because it may require you to have your medications adjusted if you're not under control. More recently, I would say over the last two or three years, I started looking at social determinants of health, particularly the modifiable ones. Uh, and this includes questions about work, whether patients are coming out each month financially, are there things we can do about that, or referral pathways or or even signposting that we can do. I also discuss loneliness and social isolation. And the issue about social, the reason why we focus on these social issues is because we can now refer directly in one borough of London, or we get the GP refer them to these programs to help with uh, loneliness under the umbrella of social prescribing. Cognition. Yeah, I don't specifically ask about cognition because it's well known that self-reporting cognitive problems is not helpful. Yeah, I'm not sure if you're aware that most people with multiple sclerosis who complain of cognitive problems are more likely to be depressed and anxious than have significant cognitive impairment. This is work done uh, by um, psychologists in uh, several countries. So I prefer to try and pick up subtle clues from the consultation about the impact of MS on cognition and whether it's an issue and try to deal with the consequences as best I can. And, and as an example, uh, an occupational health assessment may be more appropriate action if somebody's not coping at work then a formal neuropsychological assessment sending people for formal neuropsychological or psychometric assessments are really quite stressful they take one and a half or two hours often the results come back you've got cognitive impairment we don't have treatments for that we may have some rehab and it leaves the patients distraught so i think um, preempting the issues around cognitive impairment uh, are often better than measuring it um we are monitoring convention with, with our online STMT, and I must point out that I've had quite a few people who are functioning at a very high level who have very low scores, so the, and I think they compensate for their cognitive impairment problems by doing other things. <coughs> so the cognition issue is complex, um, and uh, my MS nurse specialists don't like me forcing it on patients because of the potential psychological impact. <coughs> Also, I'd like, in the consultation, I'd like to get an idea of activities of daily living. You know, if you are disabled, you know, it's very important to know if you are managing your activities of daily living. You know, are are you able to do your own self-care? Can you get up in the morning from the bed to the bathroom, wash and dress yourself? Can you brush your teeth? What is the state of your oral hygiene? Do you have caries or gum disease that needs attention? 
What about foot care? Can you cut your own toenails? Do you need a referral to podiatrist? Can you wash, dry and brush your hair? Can you transfer yourselves from the bed to a wheelchair, to the toilet if you're a wheelchair user? You know, if you are battling with any of these things, have you had the occupationalist and, and uh, physiotherapist into the home and had the necessary home adaptation? Um, in almost every clinic, you know, one or two of my patients must be seen in by the community disability team uh, to do these kind of things. So it's something that would not be picked up unless you asked about them. And, you know, people with multiple sclerosis often adapt to their current situation. It's kind of like it's the new normal. So it's really important that we ask about this. Then I ask about social care. You know, some, um, for some of my patients, they may need social issues looked at. You know, is their care package sufficient? Are they managing to get everything done when their carers come in, for example? Very few people now have the resources to have a full-time carer. So the carers may come in twice a day, once a day, three times a day. Um, and sometimes if they can't feed themselves and the care is on such a tight schedule, they can't wait long enough. They can't stay around to feed the patients properly. So they truncate feeding, for example. I've had a few people in the past who've become malnourished. They're getting meals. They're just not getting big enough meals because it's rushed. And they, they, may have, they may have chewing and swallowing problems and they may need you know, 45 minutes to eat a meal. And the care has only got a half an hour, you know, 10 to 20, 15 minutes to prepare the meal and then feed them, and they just don't get through the meal. And this is a tragedy. It's, it's, it's a problem with the care system. Bulbar function, you know, in people with them, people who are more disabled, I always ask about swallowing problems and choking episodes, and this frequently prompts a referral for a speech and language assessment, and it usually involves them being investigated to make sure it's swallowing safe. Very little we can do about this, but if you are having swallowing problems, it's very important that your carers and your partner or your family who you live with uh, know how to um, do a Heimlich maneuver in case you choke. Um, advanced directives, I don't know if you're aware, but uh, the NHS has this mandate now. It's one of the uh, requirements for general practitioners to try and get you to complete an advanced directive. This is essentially a living will on, on how you want to be managed if something serious happens to you. you know, do you want to go to ITU or an ventilator and all those intensive care procedures that make that, that need to be done and I personally think the advanced directive needs to be done early in the course of your disease when you are uh, cognitively sharp and have insight and can discuss the issues with your partner and your family waiting until you have advanced MS and you've got cognitive impairment and co cognition problem communication problems it's probably too late to do an advanced directive because it might not be considered to be um, appropriate then we also expected to be able to give individual patients, you know, time to ask questions and discuss clinical trials and research. And so this has all got to be squashed into 15 minutes. And so you can see that uh, uh, the 15 minutes, if you have to go through what I've just spoken about in every patient, will, will have been gone a long time ago. You know, um, and so this is why I am a big fan of asynchronous consultation, using email summaries or a portal that automates some of the above, uh, you know, and why you need to be more proactive about managing your own MS, because a lot of these problems can be addressed by yourself, uh, and you come to the clinic with only one or two problems where everything else has been sorted, either via email or something else, or self-referral, and we can just highlight the problems that we need to fix. Um, I have been heavily criticized uh, for including more advanced in the terminal phase of MS as part of my MS journey tube map. 
you know, the people who criticized me were you know, very high up, very influential people in the MS field. And they said to me that people with multiple sclerosis don't need to know about advanced MS and the terminal phases. The argument was that, uh, particularly for recently diagnosed patients with early MS, they don't need this information up front. They can learn about it later. You know, I countered this argument that unless you know how severe MS can become, uh, you know, how do you incorporate this into your decision-making in terms of MS risk and the risks associated with treating MS with high-efficacy DMTs? If you don't appreciate that the whole purpose of disease-modifying treatments is about preventing the late stage or advanced stage or the terminal phase of the disease, then you will think you're, you know, you'll be told that the MS is uh, relatively benign, of course, and, and you will opt for a safer therapy. If, they, if you're told and aware of the potential consequence of MS, you'll almost certainly incorporate it into your decision-making. And I personally think deliberately holding back this information is tantamount to malpractice. And I would imagine if it went to a legal decision, it would be considered malpractice. It would not be appropriate to hold back information. There have been a lot of legal cases recently about not um, telling people about rare complications of surgery or medications in, in terms of the informed consent process. I suspect not because the surgeon or the clinician didn't want to tell them about it. He didn't have time, or she didn't have time, and the pay, and the and, it, and the uh, legal system didn't cons didn't consider this appropriate. Anyway, this newsletter is not, and this podcast is not meant to be comprehensive. Um, I think it's written to provide an overview, uh, you know, of our problems with managing MS holistically on NHS, the problem we have with time constraints, uh, and why the self-management revolution and the use of technology will help. And this is what the whole purpose of MS Selfie, MS self-management is for, is to prompt you to be more proactive in managing your own MS. Um, please let me know if I've missed anything. Uh, and I'd also like to know your own experience of the and your annual review. Um, you know, what worked, what didn't work, what would you like to happen? Uh, and, you know, there are, it's horses for courses. There's no one solution for everybody. You know, I think we need to develop, and this needs to be developed going forward, particularly uh, as we start adopting new technologies. I have also written previously about uh, preparing for your annual follow-up appointment. Um, I spoke to you about, you know, my my MS priorities and your MS questionnaire. These are two online PDFs or uh, questionnaires you can complete and print out and send to your clinician prior to the appointment. And I think, you know, in patients who do that with, for me, it really, really does help direct consultation. It makes it much more um, streamlined. And I think it allows the individual MS to feel part of the consultation. The worst thing, though, if you fill those things in and your clinician or, or MS nurse specialist ignores them, and that sometimes also happens. Okay. Um, anyway, if you've got any comments, please comment. Uh, forward this to people with the disease uh, who aren't subscribers to MS Selfie. And if you are a, a, a subscriber and you're not paying, please consider becoming a paying subscriber. And as you know, all the resources, all the uh, income from the MS Selfie goes to supporting the MS Selfie microsite, which is being used. It's not, as, it's not being used as much as I would hope, but I suspect we need to publicize it more. Maybe you can help publicize it. Anyway, enjoy, and I hope you have a good summer.